Hello, my name is David Ian McKendry, former Fangoria video producer and writer back in the early 2010s, and now podcast host of this show, Penning Terror. Now, each episode of Penning Terror, I'll be interviewing renowned horror writers to get their insight into the craft of horror writing and the business in general from a writer's perspective. This show is for both up-and-coming writers out there that are looking for advice from professional working writers, as well as you non-writers out there who are just curious about the process or just want to hear an in-depth, behind-the-scenes account of how your favorite horror films got onto the page. Whatever brought you here, I hope you enjoy the show and that you walk away with something useful from it. And now on with Penning Terror. Whenever you come in here and interrupt me, you're breaking my concentration. You're distracting me. You're distracting me. You're distracting me. And it will then take me time to get back to where I was. You're distracting me. It's 2020 and surfing the web is dead. All the horror news you need is now just one click away. Fangoria.com is your first destination for all the horror news of the day, featuring a constant curation of the Fango team's favorite links from across the internet. You'll also find deep dives and daily thoughts from the biggest names in horror, as well as exclusive access to the Fangoria vault. Check out Fangoria.com for yourself and see the horror right before your eyes. Use promo code PENNINGTERROR for 15% off right now. That's promo code PENNINGTERROR, P-E-N-N-I-N-G-T-E-R-R-O-R, for 15% off right now. On today's episode of Penning Terror, I sit down with legendary horror writer and director Richard Stanley. He comes by to talk about his latest film, Color Out of Space, an adaptation of the H.P. Lovecraft short story of the same name. Uh, we also talk about adaptations and specifically adapting classic literature and, and bringing it into the modern age. Uh, this was such an honor for me. I have been a huge fan of uh, Richard Stanley's work since uh, ever since I stumbled across a copy of Hardware at my local video store. So please enjoy this interview with Richard Stanley. What drew you to this particular Lovecraft story? Well, of all the um, Lovecraft stories, Color Out of Space is one of the most readily adaptable just because it's set on a farm in Arkham, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. and not in Antarctica like uh, at the Mountains of Madness or at the bottom of the Mariana Trench or on right. Venus or somewhere completely unreachable. Yeah. The fact that it mostly devolves around a single family, the Gardner family and the backwards Arkham means that um, it's one's at least got an, an even chance of adapting it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's as a writer, uh, he seems like a very difficult uh, writer to adapt. Um, and I was just really amazed at how you were able to, to stay true to the, the source material. Um, is there what were some of the difficulties you encountered with uh, with adapting it? Well, I, there's kind of three principal um, problems with adapting Lovecraft. 
Um, one Lovecraft doesn't really have characters. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not interested in humanity. Um, <laughs> he, I've never known Lovecraft to really include anything um, resembling a, a traditional love story or any kind of traditional motivation for his characters. He's mm-hmm. more interested in um, basically evoking this mood of, um, of cosmicism, of um, cosmic horror and the... Um, the, the sheer size of the universe and the insignificance of humanity in the face of it. He mm-hmm. he doesn't really do dialogue. Mm-hmm. And um, also rooted as he is in the 1920s, there in the original material, there's a um, his um, misanthropy towards the human race also contains elements of racism and um, misogyny which have to be uh, addressed and mm-hmm. uh, dragged out into the open and yeah. <laughs> exposed to um, some critical analysis. We really? can't just assimilate that stuff without um, dealing dealing with it on some mm. level. So yeah, Lovecraft's disdain for humanity does make it a mm. challenge to create rounded and sympathetic um, characters within the um, that context. Mm. Then a, a secondary issue is that um, Lovecraft stories usually always use a series of kind of 19th century style distancing devices where usually you're not dealing with the lead character in the story, but you're usually dealing with a narrator mm-hmm. who has heard the story from someone else who has heard the story from someone else. Like mm-hmm. in the original Color Out of Space, it's a, um, a a surveyor working for the Reservoir Project years later who is talking to the the surviving neighbor of the Gardner family who knew the Gardeners back in the previous century. Mm-hmm. So you've got a sort of series of distancing devices which um, obviously are um, pretty much impossible to evoke on film. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you were able to get the the humanity in your characters. Where where would you where did you go to to reach that that humanity and and create your characters? Well, I think as with um, directing, um, with decent writing, you want to find some emotional truth within oneself. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I generally reach to my um, nearest and dearest if I have to. Um, kill someone or fold spindle and mutilate them in some <laughs> form in the movie, I tend to um, reach out to um, my immediate family members, to um, my partners, mothers, etc. Right. Certainly the um, mother figure um, in um, Color Out of Space is based fairly closely on my own mother, mm-hmm. who um, basically was the one who introduced me to H.P. Lovecraft, but then who also... Um, died a very um, slow, lingering mm-hmm. death of lymphoma, which caused her to um, gradually mutate and change and for her personality to fall apart to the point where um, myself and um, my siblings had to um, deal with the idea of effectively killing her, of um, of euthanizing her, which mm-hmm. um, feeds back into um, into color in various ways. Right. I think um, the youngest son in the family, um, Jack, who's always making the um, crayon drawings of the monsters, is probably a reflection of um, my younger self um, retreating into um, drawing Cthulhu and different creatures while my parents tore themselves apart in the front seat of the car and I'd be skulking in the back. So I, I tend to look to... Um, here to my own life and my own loved ones, it's much harder to um, kill people when you're imagining it's being your your mother or your kid that's actually being killed rather than um, some two-dimensional character. Felt like it really did come from a personal space there. Cage really did capture that madness really well. Um, what what was that like working with, with somebody like him? Um, Nick was tremendous and um, worked out in advance where he was going to, uh, he wanted to improvise and depart from the script mm-hmm. and also found a very personal um, meaning in it. And mm-hmm. that um, much of his performance, um, particularly the latter half of the film, mm-hmm. is um, drawing on his own father. 
just as I was drawing my mum. Wow. It's the same um, characterization and the same figure who um, inflects um, Vampire's Kiss. And it's, something, mm-hmm. it's a theme that uh, Nick returns to, and it's not just some, some kind of goofy voice or actor yeah. putting on it, it is his dad, yeah. which keeps um, yeah, yeah. bleeding through it. And um, I was particularly keen on the way in which, uh, once again, Nick takes it in the direction which is quite broad and comical, quite freaky, but at the same time um, still hits the essential points from the Lovecraft story. Yeah. And um, the entire um, set piece towards the end where the, um, where the where the cop and the scientist come to the house and Nathan um, invites them into the lounge is um, almost word verbatim from the original um, Color Out of Space Lovecraft story, yeah. but I think plays real well. Yeah. I think Nick really found the tone for it. So when you're uh, working with uh, interpreting this, um, I know so many people take the material and use it as a um, as a, a launching point for a different story. Why why were you so uh, interested in keeping it in the Lovecraft world? Well, Lovecraft's certainly one of the most significant figures in um, in the in the genre. I mean, he pretty much. Um, rewrote the rule book and mm-hmm. um as such none of his um core canon none of, none of the main stories that um he's famous for have ever really been um successfully adapted mm-hmm. so um i mean all the previous hits that have come from his work like um reanimator being a good example but um don't really represent the true flavor of um hpl's um mythos mm-hmm. um reanimator is adapted from um some stories he wrote i think when he was literally 13 or 14 for an amateur periodical mm-hmm. and it's a very long way from lovecraft at full strength mm-hmm. and i think um i owed a debt to um the material to um to try to be as faithful as possible mm-hmm. and moreover to try to um reinvent it in a way that made it um relevant to a contemporary audience. I didn't want um, HPL stuff to be a, a, a quaint or um, a kind of a, um, a rather charming holdover from the turn of the century or the 1920s. Mm-hmm. I have a plush Cthulhu doll back home that I sleep with and I'm pl- prone to Call of Cthulhu role-playing games. Right. But I knew I wanted to get away from that and try to uh, re- basically retool the mythos in a way that was um, still going to be dangerous for um, mm-hmm. present-day audiences and for um, generations to come. Now, how did you, uh, what were some of the devices you went to to, uh, to reach a, a relevancy to today with the, this material that's over 100 years old? <laughs> or... Yeah, well, although over 100 years old, it's, it's worth noting that HPL's never been more popular than he is now, Yeah, which is a, a strange and creepy thing. One mm-hmm. has to ask, why is it that this, um, these hoary old tales are suddenly um, selling so well, and why are there um, several Lovecraft film festivals which are all sold out in advance and um, such yeah. a huge amount of interest? And clearly, there is something in the material which does can speak to the um, the contemporary zeitgeist. And I think that um, in part this is because of um, the way we, we are um, clearly losing control or perhaps never had control over the environment. Mm-hmm. And um, we sense the world is changing and growing away from us and mutating in a way that uh, we, we simply cannot predict, mm-hmm. which means there's a huge amount of insecurity about what's going to happen to um, the generations to come and whether our kids will... Um, will will ascend what what world they'll be living in yeah and a lot of folk are ans- asking that question and 
I think simultaneously in the 21st century, there's been a, um, a general failure of um, the main Orthodox religions. There's very few people converting now to um, Roman Catholicism or Orthodox Judaism, and mm-hmm. more people are questioning the issue of, okay, um, if we were created, then were we really created by an all-wise, all-kind creator God, mm-hmm. or was something else responsible? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think those those questions have been looming large. You, you spoke on the, uh, the fandom of Lovecraft. It, does that play into your mind as you're in the writing phase of... Uh, of appealing to the audience or worrying about how the audience that is a diehard fan of this work will take it, will interpret it? I guess I was more um, worrying about how I would take it as a Mm -hmm. diehard fan of Lovecraft. And uh, there was also a um, deliberate move um, to locate it into a um, a larger um, Lovecraftian um, fictional universe. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure whether we'll make any any more Lovecraft films. I'd Mm -hmm. I'd be down for it if the opportunity came along. Mm -hmm. But within um, the Color Out of Space adaptation, there's a number of um, different um, Lovecraftian fictions are name-checked at various points. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of um, Dunwich Horror um, Easter eggs and... Tub. Yeah. Are there some other uh, Lovecraft stories you'd like to see uh, made into films, some specific ones? Um, well, all of us are hoping that one day someone will tackle Call of Cthulhu. Right. I know James Wan's de- developed uh, Call of Cthulhu for years, but um, it's never actually um, seen the light of day, just like the Del Toro at the Mountains of Madness. Yeah. And for some reason, that's the um, the, the crown jewels or the, uh, the the kind of the the most famous story in the canon, but it's just never actually gotten out there. Uh, what do you think owes to that, as far as Lovecraft is concerned, like maybe the vagaries of his light writing or something like that, or the the way he describes certain things is there something that prevents that from happening i think with the um the, the more substantial lovecraft um tales notably cthulhu and um mountains of madness it's a combination of two problems they're um they're expensive mm-hmm. um both have an epic sweep mm-hmm. and require um shooting in ridiculous places like the mariana trench or um mm-hmm. uh, things where a, a kind of a um an epic scale coupled with the fact that they're public domain mm-hmm. and um, the studios I think are very nervous to um, go over a certain budget on material that they have no control over mm-hmm. um, yeah. plainly if a major studio made Call of Cthulhu um, anyone else could probably make three other Call of Cthulhu's by the time they'd finished making it and um, have <laughs> them out because they simply cannot control the title Right. and both um, Cthulhu and the Necronomicon the, um, the Grimoire, the Black book of law that floats around in um, the Lovecraft mythos are um, have are so well known throughout the world it's incredible I mm. mean people in Russia in Japan in the Pyrenees where I live who have no grasp of English and probably don't even know who HP Lovecraft are can nonetheless sound um, readily identify Cthulhu yeah uh, they've <laughs> immediately heard of the Necronomicon it's it's kind of saturated the whole of human culture mm. so it's impossible to tighten the screws of the copyright on that no studio could actually could fully own Cthulhu or fully own the Necronomicon right and I think they're um that 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 frightens them into um going into that neck of the woods mm-hmm. yeah once they announce it there's going to be Hundreds yeah, of them coming probably, out, um, yeah. Two versions from the asylum yeah. before they can um, get yeah, out there. <laughs> exactly. Um, so when you're working on this, do you um, do you look to other uh, Lovecraft materials as as a way to to capture his voice uh, in in the writing process? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely um, I brought in elements of some of the other stories, um, mm-hmm. most notably in. Um, 
Our current adaptation, it does also include a couple of um, beats from um, Whisper in Darkness, mm -hmm. which is one of my favorite Lovecraft stories with the old farmer living at the top of the river who is recording the, the aliens apparently right. living in the hill behind his house who yeah. sends the transcripts of the audio recordings to the narrator, uh -huh. which um, totally chilled me as a kid. Uh -huh. But oh. also, um, I live in a very um, Lovecraftian place in the, um, in the Pyrenees, mm -hmm. in the, um, the south, what's now the south of France. And um, about 10 years ago, when I first set up out there, most of the people I know remarked on the fact that you could shoot a, um, an H.P. Lovecraft or a film or a weird fiction film there really easily. Yeah. So that kind of just seeped into my bones. Mm -hmm. Well, now talking about where you live now, you, you've written in Hollywood and now you're writing in France. What were the, some of the, uh, the differences in, in what you could accomplish uh, here as opposed to out there? Well, I've been outside of the system for about um, 10 years mm -hmm. and honestly didn't intend to um, ever um, re-engage with the film industry. Mm -hmm. uh, I took off with the full intention of spending my, the rest of my life living on top of a mountain in the, in the middle of nowhere, mm -hmm. which um, improved my writing immeasurably, yeah. um, although obviously it became less commercial. But mm -hmm. um, during the few years that I was um, left completely alone on the mountain, I think um, my work um, improved immeasurably. There were about three years in the middle of that when um, it was just me and the cat. Mm -hmm. And... Um, yeah, I think I did some of my um, my best creative writing at that point. Yeah, um, right outside the system. Was it just the, the freedom of just being able to do what you wanted to do and just focus on that? Yeah, not being interrupted for a, a long period of time. It was, it's fabulous being able to um, yeah wake up and um, get down to it and um, play whatever music one wants yeah. and to be able to bore deeper and deeper into it. Which um, it, I think. Um, Whenever you're writing anything, that first the first pass is always uh, something one should try to do. Um, I think in one go. I, I think one needs to once you're ready and you've hoovered up enough um, research and um, enough enthusiasm. It's really a good idea to try and get oneself away from the world and um, batten the hatches and um, find some remote place where you can hunker down for at least uh, a month or um, two months or however long it takes to actually um, bash out the um, the first draft. Nice. It's tricky when you, whenever you, I find whenever you put something down, whenever you stop writing or um, let it go for a week, you, you can feel the hitches and the time flow later when you read the script. Mm -hmm. I can always feel where I've written one part and then come back and written a little bit more and the material that I write in one continuous spree or um, always flows better. So what is the uh, what is the the process for you? Is it is it uh, handwriting, going at it, uh, notebook and pen, or are you sit down at a computer? Or? I think notebook and pen for the very first part, which is essentially sketching out the structure mm -hmm. and coming up for beat sheet. There's a period of time where one's still tossing it around until one actually um, has a point-by-point -point, um, breakdown of the whole thing. I don't like to um, climb into the script until I've got a, um, a flowchart or a beat sheet, something which has reduced every scene to a, to a bullet point. Mm -hmm. and, um, then I know where I'm going. Mm -hmm. And um, usually that's the time where one... Um, fixes the structure or figures out um, how it's going to hit the um, yeah the main points and beats in it. And that's um, usually handwritten in that first part of roughing out the structure and it can take however long. It can take months or even years until one's got like a, um, 
a full um, a full plan of everything that's going to happen. But then I think once you've got that beat sheet and you, the the roadmap to where the story is going, one really needs to get at it and try to hit it as hard as possible and as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. And especially if you're writing genre, mm-hmm. um, where the or where there's a an inbuilt need for the thing to have an internal pace that um, grabs people by the throat and pulls pulls them forward through the material. Mm-hmm. That, uh, doing it in a um, a continuous um, sitting, I think, is um, definitely worthwhile. Although obviously not good for one's sanity because one usually emerges from the process a little bit um, twisted and strange, mm-hmm. and it can be difficult holding um, regular conversations with people if you've been like writing about say an air crash or something for two three weeks or writing about the holocaust for a month or something and then you you try to have a normal conversation of someone it comes out all stilted and one's right. still speaking in statistics about mm-hmm. you know how much blood the human body holds or um, at what temperature yeah. uh, we start to freeze or something right <laughs> so do you, you do a lot of uh, research like that like going into uh into your work like uh... Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 there's always some challenge. There's always some some element that one doesn't really know about um, mm-hmm. coming into it. Yeah, as a filmmaker, as a director, how much does onset improvising play into that, or do you do you stick closer to the script? Um, well, I always try to um, stay on book as such and to mm-hmm. um, to cover what we got, but. Um, one of the marvelous things about um, directing the um, material that one's written is that the moment you have cast, and even at a table read, the moment you get a cast around your screenplay, mm-hmm. and even if you've worked on it for years and years and years, it's amazing how much they improve it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's amazing how much better it gets. And um, usually about um, a third of it at least falls away completely and you mm-hmm. discover that you don't need all that exposition. Mm-hmm. Um, things which are clunky and um, don't sound right um, basically are flagged almost at once and um, so that's a a hugely um, useful part of the process and then an actor who's able to um, run with the material and improvise like like Nicolas Cage or um, Marlon Brando back in the past Mm -hmm. is um, yeah, can bring a whole different perspective or insight to the material. Mm-hmm. So you find yourself constantly kind of rewriting, I guess, in, in a way, as, as you're working on the film? Yeah, the script is never, ever finished, uh, mm-hmm. and that, that continues all the way through to um, the post-production, pro- uh, um, where um, uh, generally um, everyone is um, jostling and fighting over the um, the ADR lines and dropping in one line here or taking mm-hmm. one thing out here. And so the writing process continues, I think, Mm-hmm. Um, right, to, right to the very end. There's never really a point where I feel the um, the, the, the script is locked. Mm-hmm. Now, um, going to the adaptation, there's been uh, a few um, uh, films out there that have either adapted or uh, used uh, Color Out of Space as a uh, inspiration. When you're working on writing something uh, of this nature, do you push those away, or do you kind of look at other ways people have interpreted the material? Well, as a fan, I'm super familiar with um, the other adaptations. Mm-hmm. So um, there have been a number of um, direct ad- adaptations of Color Out of Space before. But also, um, I think the basic story from the 1920s has been around so long that it's um, influenced the entire genre. I think pretty mm-hmm. much every um, 
1950s movie where a meteorite strikes a remote rustic area and a hick farmer comes out and pokes the meteorite with <laughs> a stick is um, somehow relating back to um, Color Out of Space. Yeah. <laughs> and we've seen it parodied several times, like mm -hmm. the um, the very amusing Lonesome Death of Geordie Varrell segment in Creepshow, which mm -hmm. is um, strongly based on color. Yeah. And um, yeah, readapted a number of ways. So uh, yeah, I'm certainly aware of all of that. Mm -hmm. And um, I think part of the challenge with um, reinventing a classic, um, and the same would obtain to um, adapting Dracula or Frankenstein or any of the, the, the archetypal classics, is you want to hit all of the principal plot beats. Mm -hmm. uh, you want to make certain that it's still the story, uh, that all of those big moments um, do eventually happen within the movie, because I don't want the audience to go away feeling cheated, going mm -hmm. like, you know, oh, that never happened in the Bram Stoker original, and didn't Renfield die, or one thing or another. You want mm -hmm. to hit all the main points, but you also want to try and hit them in a new way. You want mm -hmm. to try and hit them in a way that hasn't been done before, and um, so you want to you you want it to be fresh while at the same time archetypal, mm -hmm. and that always very much satisfies me when I can arrive at a um, at a classic archetypal moment without um, the audience knowing that um, that I'm going there. Mm -hmm. There were a number of things events and color in the story which um, I was very keen to um, to make real to um, to to um, give an emotional reality to, like notably the issue of um, locking one's mutated loved ones in the attic, which mm -hmm. is something that's so Lovecraftian, yeah. but at the same time so hard to um, to play or justify because almost no one in the present day would respond to um, mm -hmm. the mutation of their loved ones by um, locking them in the attic or the, the shuttered room or the, the barn next door, but it's it's still something which is so core to the material that you know it has to happen. Yeah. So it's like it's, it comes down to how do you arrive at that moment? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how do you make it um, feel um, logical or um, or real in a, a 21st century context? But mm -hmm. you still want the moment. I think just dropping it and pretending it isn't there is, is is cheating. Right. Yeah. And one thing that I'm really really curious about is, in the original story, you're not given really a clear description of this thing. I mean, you're, you're told a color that it doesn't exist on a spectrum and and all these vague uh descriptions of it uh how do you arrive at your interpretation of that well um lovecraft generally doesn't have to he doesn't have to show us the monster but he always sort of brings the monster on in the stories mm -hmm. like usually the creature does turn up in the lovecraft stories usually in italics in the last paragraph <laughs> um so keeping the monster off screen isn't really an option mm -hmm. it's just there's still an obligation to eventually bring the nameless indescribable um horror on yeah and, um, it is show business so mm -hmm. um, although loads of people were telling me throughout don't show it and uh, i felt again that the audience audiences would ultimately feel cheated if we um, chickened out and didn't show the thing at all so there was an onus on us to um, try to visualize the something that couldn't be visualized hmm. and um, one of the things that helped us was that um, Lovecraft was a big fan of um, the um, weird the, the weird tales artist Virgil Finlay mm -hmm. and um, in fact wrote a sonnet to him at one point and um, was um, super fond of um, Virgil Finlay's artwork so um, we do have one Virgil Finlay plate illustrating Color Out of Space mm -hmm. which sort of carries the um, the HP Lovecraft um, seal of approval yeah. so we were able to um, concentrate on that I, um, I gave copies of it to the various um, special effects folk and the Spanish VFX artists and mm -hmm. went throughout saying this, this, this and mm -hmm. um, pushed it towards the original um, 
Weird Tales illustration, which is where you get the, the trees and all kinds of elements are coming from um, the original Weird Tales illustration, Yeah, which really, really helped. Um, otherwise, um, trying to visualize something that we can't see, we do know some things about... Um, potential ultra-dimensional intrusions into um, into our consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, we know that um, the human spectrum is limited to, um, it basically runs between ultraviolet and infrared. Mm -hmm. And that if you, if something is existing outside of the spectrum, we, we, the closest you're going to see to it is probably something like a um, an ultraviolet blur. Mm -hmm. um, the thing itself isn't ultraviolet, but that's just as close as we, we as humans are able to see to it. Mm -hmm. um, the um, audio spectrum as well runs between ultrasound and infrasound. Mm -hmm. And um, as a result, um, the color soundtrack also tries to go there with um, very high-pitched and deep bass tones that dip in and out of um, mm -hmm. ultrasound and infrasound. Yeah. Now, uh, updating the material, there's uh, there's a lot more to to contend with with modern technology. Uh, what were some of the things going into this that you knew you'd have to uh, adapt to? Well, everyone working in the genre now has um, problems trying to um, organically work in um, cell phones and computer technology and justify why none of the characters simply um, call an Uber and escape, mm -hmm. which um, is something which is... Yeah, made it a lot more challenging. Uh, um, the world is a lot more joined up now than it used to be. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to say, to um, get away with the idea that so, uh, any place is so isolated that um, that people can't call for help or escape. Mm -hmm. um, the same obtains to um, stories like, say, Island of Dr. Moreau. It, it's just impossible to imagine that a mad scientist might be working in isolation somewhere on a remote island and right. nobody's noticed. Mm -hmm. and this is one of the reasons why I think lost world fiction has completely died out that it's really hard to believe that there could be entire civilizations or um, any kind of um, lost kingdom hidden away in the age of um, of Google Earth. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, there, there now has to be always some inbuilt explanation as to um, why the authorities don't arrive in time or, or why the right bits of information aren't mm -hmm. passed on. Yeah. In the first um, two, three drafts of Color Out of Space, I set the, the, the I reset the story in the place where I'm currently living in the south of France. Mm -hmm. um, ultimately, we were unable to film in France, and I had to change it around. But mm -hmm. in the first couple of drafts, I used the language barrier. I liked the idea that all the people living around them were speaking French. Right. Um, the um, lead characters were speaking English, and the problem was so um, otherworldly and strange that their, their grasp of French is simply too poor for them to be able to communicate the fact that they're dying and in trouble. Mm -hmm. um, so um, there's different ways of, um, I think, working that stuff in. I like to generally... Um, use the cell phones and the computers in ways that hurt the characters more i was uh, i think uh, as people are always going to go for them mm -hmm. you know a, a cell is something which you know can equally attract danger if it rings at the wrong time and there's all kinds of ways that we can still use that technology to create more tension or create more scare sequences mm -hmm. we do have to contend with it Mm. Now, there's one thing I want to talk about. It, I don't know if I if I can talk about this. Uh, I found a list of some scripts you'd written uh, that uh, this was on your IMDb page. I don't know if this is something you could talk about, but some some very interesting things came up when I was looking at some of the stuff you've you've written and were working on. Uh, some stories that I love, like uh, Vi. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that? 
Yeah, um, V, Vai, um, the Nikolai Gogol classic. Um, I've loved that since I was a child. Again, it's the fault of my mum for reading me this creepy story Mm -hmm. when I was um, extremely young. Um, But what really turned me on about V um, was... um, a, that it's, I think it's um, possibly the oldest identifiable vampire. Mm-hmm. Um, it's way pre-Dracula. Yeah. Um, um, Gogol pins it, it says it's a, a folk story, a, a colossal creation of the popular unconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, this um, Cossack um, vampire may be, um, I, I guess, the earliest identifiable um, um, um Bloodsucker, but he's also the Lord of the Undead. Um, and um, in the original story, there's a um, a weird um, thing with the translation where um, V is alternatively described sometimes as um, as the King of the Dead, but also the King of the Trolls. Uh, mm-hmm. It's hard to know whether these figures are dead people, witches, trolls, vampires. They, mm-hmm. um, the genre is not very well defined yet. Mm-hmm. Yet um, there's certain generic tropes, archetypal moments that are already in place, mm-hmm. like the guy waiting next to the coffin for the dead person to sit up, which is something we're familiar with from um, Dracula, from Salem's Lot, mm-hmm. from um, countless other um, moments over the next hundred years or so, but we can feel its um, origin in um, in the Gogol story, which is super exciting to me. And um, also, um, when I got a little bit further into it, I realized that the name itself, V, V-I-Y, yeah. um, is in fact in um, in the Ukraine and um, in Serbo-Croat in a big swathe of Europe. Mm-hmm. is simply a term of respect that you use for your elders or better, like Sir. Oh, okay. V, v. Is, oh, V, I was saying yeah, it wrong. <laughs> that's right. It's, it's used quite commonly in speech. It's yeah. like a, a, a V or like, like Bouvard in French. It mm-hmm. is, a, is like well, how you refer to your elder. Yeah. And the fact that all the other fiends refer to the Lord of the Undead as V, bring V, fetch V. Right. I'm not sure it's even his name. It's just the maybe a term of respect for um, akin to your boss or sir, some a way of referring to your to your master. Huh. So, yeah, yeah, I feel I fell in love with that story when I saw the uh, the Soviet uh, version of that. Yeah, the Soviet version is pretty great. I wanted a better V at the end. He's a bit clunky when he yeah. Up. And so many of the other fiends are, are wonderful and like um, color out of space and a lot of the Lovecraft stuff. The story has a, a, a sickening um, fatality about it. Yeah, there's absolutely no way of escape. Mm-hmm. And, um, the character is just dragged back to to his doom. Yeah. Um, night, night after night and realizes by the last third he's not going to make it and there's nothing to do but um, drink vodka and dance and yeah. get ready to die because yeah. there's no absolutely no way out of it and that sense of the impending um, inescapable doom that hangs over the story yeah. coupled with the very Lovecraftian notion that if there is a god, God probably hates us <laughs> which um, certainly comes across in, in V and in the Soviet version as the guy tries to read the Bible and we see the very frightening painted god of the mural glaring, glaring around him <laughs> So yeah, I loved all that material, and again, I wanted to. Um, my plan would have been to modernize it mm-hmm. and oh, yeah. dra- drag drag it into the present into the present day. Um, yeah, the, the script I wrote, unfortunately, was um, at the time deemed too um, politically incorrect and mm-hmm. um, unmentionable to um, to get made. It de- we developed it quite far and um, storyboarded a lot of it. Yeah. it was going to be set in a. Um, a Bosnian Muslim enclave during the um, Yugoslavian civil war, oh, wow. and um, involved a um, 
a UN um, blue helmet who um, kills and uh, rapes and kills a witch, uh, a, a Bosnian Muslim girl while on duty, and then the the, the, the unit is passively prevented from um, leaving the enclave for um, three nights, and the witch comes back from the dead to, oh, uh, wow. uh, to, to find him, and eventually she brings V, who turns out yeah. to be Pharrell, and is still buried at the crossroads. Yeah. So um, I'd like to, I, I wanted to yeah, update it and mm -hmm. drag it into the present day and make something out of that um, that blurring between the name of the oldest of the undead mm. and the term for um, what you call um, your superior or your boss. Yeah, wow. Um, so going to, to Lovecraft's love of not happy endings, <laughs> of very fatalist endings, is that something that's kind of hard to... to to sell to someone to say like I want to make a non-happy ending film like that. I guess that's also one of the reasons why we haven't seen that many big Lovecraft studio movies. Mm -hmm. But it seems like an utter betrayal of the material to um, to uh, to go anywhere else. I mean, yeah. Lovecraft's characters always go mad or die, mm -hmm. and um, trying to um, to foist a happy ending onto the onto the material would have been, I, I think, a complete betrayal of the. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, the um, the the essential darkness and and fear of the thing. With mm -hmm. color, I wanted to deal with death and with um the death of the inevitable sickening death of one's loved ones, mm -hmm. which um, is something that sadly most of us have to go through at least once in our lives. Mm -hmm. And usually that starts with the pets, but um, certainly all of us usually end up having to um, bury our next of kin sooner or later. Mm -hmm. And um, I kind of wanted to drag that out into the open and um address the issue in color uh any last bit of uh, uh advice you'd like to give to some writers out there that uh, you've learned over the years um i've made a great uh, i've had a lot of luck with public domain okay and um what I, I think there's fantastic material which is um now um basically free to adapt for, for mm -hmm. anyone who wants to get their hands on it and what I found is that if you've got like a famous name or a famous story, like in this case, H.P. Lovecraft, in the past, H.G. Wells, mm -hmm. um, you've already got one name on the screenplay that people recognize right. and one name to put above the title, which almost compensates for not having cast attached. Mm -hmm. And indeed, um, in this case, um, we only got the cast attached because it was Lovecraft's name. Nick Cage turned out to be a Lovecraft fan. And oh, nice. um, as a result, the script ended up in his hands. So I think there's... Um, a lot more that can be done out of the tremendous amount of literary work out there that no one has touched. Mm -hmm. And in this case, I would say that all of Lovecraft's um, heroes and the people who influenced him, let, let's say Arthur Macken and Algernon Blackwood amongst them, who we mentioned mm -hmm. off, um, off mic, we mentioned A. Merritt, mm -hmm. um, have not yet been adapted in any way at all um, for screen. Yeah. Yeah. And there's plenty of good stuff in there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would very much like to see a, a, a movie adaptation of Macken's great Pan. Mm -hmm. I'd also like to see an adaptation of Blackwood's Wendigo mm -hmm. or um, Ancient Sorceries. Um, mm -hmm. Many good pieces of material which um, are just dying to get out. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in. And uh, it was a real pleasure talking to you today. Thank you, sir. A special thank you once again to Richard Stanley for coming by today. Uh, his new film is H.P. Lovecraft's Color Out of Space. I got to see a screener of this, and I'll just say it is so rare that you get to see such a faithful execution uh, of an H.P. Lovecraft story. It's super creepy. It's super scary. It is classic Richard Stanley. Richard Stanley at his best, and 
Nicolas Cage is amazing in this film. Uh, I dare I say some of his best work. So check it out when it comes out uh, this January, January 2020, from RLJ Entertainment. Uh, be sure to get your copy once you can. Uh, see it in a the theater if you can. It's definitely worth it. And if you want to find out what I've got going on, you can follow me on Twitter at Die Day of Die, or you can check out my other podcast, Fear Initiative, wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep writing. Whenever you come in here and interrupt me, you're breaking my concentration. You're distracting me. You're distracting me. You're distracting me. And it will then take me time to get back to where I was. You're distracting me. Terror is a Fangoria Podcast Network original, hosted by David Ian McKendry, produced by Natasha Pacetta, executive producers Dallas Sonnier and Phil Nobile Jr., associate producer Jessica Safavamere, art and design by Jason Koslerich, sound recording, design, and mixing by David Ian McKendry. For Fangoria, Brandon Jones, Rachel Wilson, Brandon Wynardi, Monique Jacques, and Anthony Bonds.